I was going to say, I don't think there are any other podcasts, for example, on the BSFA best nonfiction long list that we could listen to. And it's not it's not a place where I would necessarily expect them to turn up, but that's not a place we can look and find new ones. I was quite surprised to see a podcast on that list and no mistake. I mean, I'd have been less surprised if it hadn't been us. Um, <laughs> um, it's fair to say. Hello everyone and welcome to the very 51st episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. This episode is coming to you on the 17th of February 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have some letters of comment today. We do have a letter of comment. It is a letter of comment from Chris Garcia with his congratulations on turning 50. Only the podcast, Chris. Only the podcast. Um, and he has he has some thoughts on self-promotion. Uh, as he says, he is seen as a ruthless self-promoter because uh, he did a big Chris for Taff campaign, which he says was a lot of fun. And that's true. Like, Taff is definitely a thing for which it is not only allowed to campaign and promote yourself, but basically... Uh, a whole thing of TAF because by promoting yourself for TAF you are then just promoting the TAF race and like uh, raising funds for TAF and lifting the whole thing up. Yeah when I ran for TAF didn't really promote myself because I was very nervous about whether that was acceptable. I very nearly didn't win but I did win. Hurrah! I didn't get the most votes but that was fine because I still won. Oh yeah! Uh, yeah, he also says um, he tries to self-promote things from the beginning of the year, which is interesting on the grounds that if people, you know, don't maybe don't remember as well things they read or watched at the beginning of the year, and that he likes to self-promote in the fan categories because of the required number of votes rules and because we are getting a little bit close, as we've mentioned before, to sometimes not having a win in those categories. Although I think then you can mostly promote the categories rather than promote uh, specific specific works in those categories and he also says uh side note to Alison that that's not at all how championship boxing works I was slightly surprised at the time that I didn't get any comeback on that and nobody else said and then John used it as the episode title which really I uh, did slightly worry me but there we go I don't know anything about boxing neither do I other than I dislike it it should probably not exist as a competitive sport we're going to get letters. Uh, and that's and that's the episode title. Episodes 50 to 75 are just going to be a sequence of opinions on championship boxing expressed through episode titles of Octothorpe. You heard it here first, folks. Expressed through the medium of complete ignorance. Yes, also true. So Chris says people are more likely to vote in a category if they have a horse that is in the race. And even if that's just an internet friend who has heard of their zine podcast fan writing, it's not only a vote for that thing, but to keep the category being awarded. And I do, I hadn't thought about it in those terms. And I agree that a better way to do this is to raise the profile of the category overall. And, and Cora Bueller is doing that, among others. Um, but I do see his point that like every vote in a fan category is one vote against that fan category going away. And I, I, yeah, I, I, um, I, I sort of sympathise with that viewpoint a bit. Um, I, I sympathise with, with that viewpoint a lot. I mean, I want everyone who listens to this podcast and who is a member of the 
a member of the Chicon Wilcon or or last year's Wilcon to get on and nominate, especially in the fan categories, because I think fan categories are good. And we could do that by telling you some interesting things that you might like to go and check out. I can't remember what the rules on nominations are for the categories to run. Because there's a there's a rule on votes. You have to have a certain percentage of votes as a percentage of the number of ballots coached, cast. But I don't know. Is it that you have to have at least five? Is it like if you've got beneath some percentage of the nominations, you don't appear on the ballot? Is there a risk there? Quickly to the Wisfus Constitution. Well, no, because you said you said about nominating, and I know that you did that to sort of direct away from self promotion. But now it's like, well, but is there actually a consideration here on on nominations, or is it just on voting? Oh no, but I think good nominations invigorate a category because the thing that makes it most likely that people won't vote is looking at a category and going, "I've never heard of any of these things, and why should I care?" But I think that will happen in the fan categories a lot anyway. And if fans don't self-promote their works, it's more likely to happen. So I think Chris's point might still stand. Are we now an ASMR podcast again? Because we've discussed this in the past, John. No, but genuinely, genuinely, like, I think I think that if no fans talk about their projects, then there will be no fan. And so I think Chris is right that self-promotion may well be one of the important tools to prevent the fan categories going away. Because most of the Hugo Electric don't follow fan works. So the only way they're going to is if the fans shout loudly about the fan works. Whereas like authors have like publishers marketing houses behind them. So even if the author doesn't self-promote, they have like an entire team of professionals promoting them anyway. And we don't. Okay, so you thought we were going to get letters about boxing championships? That's nothing compared to the letters we're going to get about the adequacy of publishers marketing effects. Efforts. But... But like you see, you see the point. I think I, I was too busy being stabbed through the heart by the suggestion that the Hugo voting community doesn't follow fan works. <laughs> I mean, some 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 would say that you're not the obvious pick for the idealist on the podcast. But uh, but here we are. Uh, <laughs> I I take your point, but I I do think that you could achieve it by talking about other fan works that you like rather than necessarily your own. So generally, we should just talk about fan works more. Which we're doing, I think. Yes. I like to finish on a nice un- uncontroversial opinion. Write a letter about that, if you dare. Ali Baker writes to say that she feels extremely icky about self-promotion, but a problem of non-promotion is that there is then cultural hegemony in the part of SF&F that is her area of interest, which is children's and YA literature. As far as I remember, she says, the only books on the Lodestar shortlist last year were US books and other international children's book awards are very rarely awarded to non-US authors, raising awareness of brilliant UK-based SFF authors can only be positive. Uh, and I think this is another thing that uh, resonated with me because if you do have a situation in which all the American fan creators and professional creators feel able to talk about how great they are and none of the Brits do, that that will lead to some biases in what actually ends up on the ballot. I think it's a good point and I hadn't really thought about it. Uh, so yes, thank you, Ali. That was food for thought. Historically, British fan works only got Hugos in years when the Worldcon was in Britain, on average. We got a very long letter of comment from Mark Plummer. Thank you very much. Mark says, I've been feeling guilty about ignoring Octothorpe because he has a 
relentless linearity that means that he feels the need to listen to the podcast in order. And I, I have a public service announcement for him and everybody else, which is that it is not necessary to listen to all 51 episodes of Octothorpe to get the sense of what's going on. You can just jump in where you are and then you can write to us about what we're doing. This is not a I think we have themes, but I don't think we have any sequentiality about us, really. The other two might want to comment here. I mean, there are certain cases where if you write as a letter based on like episode 37, we may have already, you know, corrected ourselves in episode 38 if we were completely wrong. For instance, if you are listening to episode 50, you probably shouldn't send us another letter about how wrong we are about championship boxing. I mean, unless you've heard us be wrong about championship boxing earlier in episode 51, in which case it's fair game again, (laughs) peeps. What's more, if you are going to do it, you could kind of take a baseball approach to it and do it in a way that has absolutely nothing to do with championship boxing, just telling us about the way in which the the laser guns really affected the way the game went, and that sort of thing. I mean, that's just true. I think, so it's tricky because I think part of the fact that we are a more discursive podcast, which has contributions from our listeners, whom we love, does mean that there are like some continuing threads. We're also topical, so, you know... Are we? A lot of stuff we talked about so many episodes ago might not make any sense. We should announce that for those of you not listening on BBC Sounds, we will be going out on a four-week delay so that our topicality makes no sense to anyone. Mark says, yes, the TAF free ebooks page is a good thing, but so are the TAF free ebooks that are on that page. And for the fan awards, you can vote for those that are published in 2021, which is a good point. They can also be voted for for Hugo's as well, but I think only in best related work where they are not going to make the slightest shadow of an imprint but by all means get on and vote for the good ones it's good he also talked about ties in taff because there was a tie in 1976 and but in the end only one person came i think the precedent seems to be send both people if taff can afford it so there was a plan to basically by a flight that would have enabled both Roy Tacker and Bill Bowers to come. But um, for some reason, that flight fell through. And in the end, only Roy Tackett came. Um, but like, there's no, that doesn't really set a precedent. And the, I think Mark is right that sending both is best. And Taff can afford it at the moment. So um, we're launching the Octothorpe campaign for Taff to be a tie. If everyone could please coordinate and make Taff a four-way tie, that would be great. Uh, Sorry, TAF administrators, this may not be the messaging you wanted. However, he also says one of the things about Anders is that Anders for TAF, incidentally, um, is that while he doesn't necessarily do the high profile jobs, he's absolutely the kind of the person who just volunteers for stuff. If you're at a convention, if you need you need somebody to move boxes or stack chairs, Anders will immediately pitch in, possibly even having done the job before you realised you needed somebody to help do it. Um, he In pubs, he habitually collects up empty glasses from around the pub and takes them back for the bar. Anders for Taff, says Mark, something which I, but not necessarily my co-hosts, heartily endorse. And I'll also say something else on Taff, which is if you are thinking of voting for somebody else first, um, consider putting Anders second. Um, because it is um, it is a properly organised vote. And of course, we're going for the four-way tie, which would be very funny. And then on self-promotion, Mark also raises this distinction between self-promotion and signal boosting, all of the other good stuff that is out there. And that is the stuff that really sways his thoughts, is when the people that, whose opinions he trusts recommend things. So don't self-promote. Get your mates to promote you instead. 
But when I did that on Twitter, you got really annoyed at me, Alison. So I'm just saying I'm getting mixed messages. Mark says a couple of things I'd like to pick up on uh, on self-promotion, which is that he does say he doesn't see it as self-promotion to tell people that a new episode of your podcast exists, which is something I mentioned because we kind of wanted to draw. And I wasn't necessarily saying I thought of that as self-promotion, but like, I think we wanted to distinguish between, oh, hey, I did a new thing and I'd like people to know about it versus, oh, hey, I did a thing and I think you should nominate me for the most prestigious award in my field, which I do think are like different concepts that we wanted to make sure we we differentiate between. Um, but he does say it does seem odd to him that I have to set reminders for myself to do it. Um, but he guesses different people function mentally in different ways. And yeah, I just, I I don't know. I just, I get to the end and I put it up and I'm like, aha, I have finished this project. My my work has gone into the world. And for me, the process of telling people that has happened doesn't trigger any of the endorphins I get from finishing the project. So like, I do need the reminder to be like, no, you, there's a little bit more work you have to do now, which is very kind of admin-y. So, so two things here. The first is that this might be slightly off topic, but I learned that just a few days ago that one of the key difference between people who are seen as organised and have their shit together and me is that people in the former group actually conceive of a project slightly differently so that they think of a project being done at the point at which you know, the dishes have been put away in the cupboard and the and the podcast has been promoted and, and the the full set of things have been done. And the people who are seen as scatty and disorganised stop their projects bang at the point where where the exciting bit is done and don't actually do those last little tidying up bits without help. That was my first point. And the second point was I believe that the range of things for which John sets reminders for him to do is quite large by the standards of normal human beings. So on your first point, one of the questions they ask you when you get screened for ADHD is, do you have trouble doing all of the tedious little bits at the end of projects? And I said, of course I do. Everyone does. Who wouldn't? And this lock is a very good example of how that is actually one of the uh, big signs that you might have ADHD. (laughs) Who knew? Mark says, wouldn't it be nice if best series was voted on once the series was actually complete, which is very close to my own views, Um, because, of course, The Expanse won the best series, Hugo, before it was finished. Yeah, my, my problem with best series is that I would like to give the awards once the series was done. I don't think that... And I don't think you could, but I, I take the point absolutely that you don't know when the series is done, because if the series is successful, they just do a bit more of it. See also American TV shows. See also Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> See also Hokusai. Let's not blame, let's not blame America for this. Like Victorian England ruined series for everyone. How many views of Mount Fuji are there in Hokusai's 36 views of Mount Fuji? Jerry Sullivan, TAF administrator extraordinaire. Much as she is entertained by John's vision of breaking a tight TAF race with a football match in the gardens of the Hilton Metropole in Birmingham, the only thing in the administrator's FAQ, the only allowable exception to the race being won by simple majority is in the very rare case of a tied race. And so Jerry agrees with Mark that the best thing to do would be to consult with one's TAF co-administrator and send both. Oh, four-way tie. Four-way tie. And then Jerry wraps up by saying, hey, I did it. Single subject lock. Thanks so much for the entire podcast. Thank you very much for your single subject lock. Jerry, it was grand. 
There are some EasterCon updates this week, which means we are back, unfortunately, to the dreaded topic of COVID. Reclamation, the 2022 EasterCon, uh, have announced their vaccination policy, which is that you have to be vaccinated. And they have announced this well in advance. So if you are not vaccinated and thinking of coming to the convention, you can go and get vaccinated. They've also opened uh, hotel bookings now. So obviously they're planning for an in-person convention and you can now book your hotel and it's all starting to look very much like there might be an in-person EasterCon in 2022. And so I am then very much thinking, ooh, should I go to EasterCon in 2022? Yes, you should. Yes, please. We're going to drink beer. There is a slight concern, which is that while the UK may be in the process of deciding that COVID is no longer a thing, and so we can just sort of pretend it's not really a thing and no one will have to wear masks or take any precautions or self-isolate, I live in a place where you are still required to self-isolate if you have COVID. And also, crucially, you cannot re-enter the country if you do have COVID and have to currently take two tests in the week you arrive to check that you have not developed COVID shortly after arriving. So my slight concern is that I would go to EasterCon, potentially get COVID, not because I think anyone at EasterCon will, you know, not be trying to be as good as possible to prevent COVID, but just because this is something that is likely to happen at a large multi-hundred person event, especially if it involves going through crowded hotels and restaurants where not everyone is from the convention and not everyone, you know, wears masks or is vaccinated. So there is a slight worry that I would do that, then, you know, get a positive test and uh, not be able to actually go home for a couple of weeks. So it's tricky. I mean, I also don't want COVID, but, you know, there's an extra, extra bonus problem if I do. Yeah. And I do wonder whether that will feature in the thoughts of some other overseas visitors to EasterCon, kind of people who usually go to EasterCon. Um, it would be interesting to hear if you write in and let us know what your thoughts are on attending EasterCon from overseas, because um, that could be, I think, quite illuminating. I will be going because I don't have to fly to Thailand afterwards, so I just have to go to Newcastle, so that's a lot easier. So um, I will be going to EasterCon because, you know, wild horses wouldn't stop me really. Um, what is life for if not to actually attend EasterCons in person? Um, I might be wearing my um, masks all the time like a good person. And we don't know what the EasterCon masking plans are yet. I don't think they need to make a decision yet about that. I think that's something you might want to make a decision about a little nearer the time. But I'm seeing lots of people having kind of thinking out loud on this, not from overseas, but just from the normal EasterCon community who are attending members, but are kind of going, I don't know whether I'm ready to go to an EasterCon or not. So we can clearly have a bunch of people who will go at all costs. And we have probably some people who definitely won't go. And I think we've still got a lot of people who are kind of in the middle going, I'm not quite sure how my personal risk profile and the EasterCon match. Um, and I think there's still quite a lot of falling out to do there. And as a result of all of that, EasterCon has had somewhat fewer of its regular volunteers sign up than usual. So if you're somebody who thinks you might have fun volunteering at an EasterCon, and that means all of you because volunteering at an EasterCon is the best fun. Um, and I know that I'm not doing it this year, but I'm really sorry, Phil. I'm quite busy with other things. I'm going to be very, very busy working all weekend at EasterCon, but I'm not necessarily working for this EasterCon doing it because I'm on the committee on one of the committees bidding for next year's EasterCon and I'm also looking after the fan fun stuff and I am also touting my yeah come and buy come and buy um, badges and enamel pins from me um, that's self-promotion right yeah so yeah come and um, 
if you if you would if you're not sure where you'd like to work, then um, I can. I think lots of us can make recommendations. But I would say that the newsletter is a great place to hang out. Not quite sure who newsletter head is. I think a lot of my pals will be working on newsletter as usual. Ogtathorpe Podcast Corner. I have been listening to podcasts. I am going to talk about two podcasts here. Um, So one of them is not eligible for Best Fancast, but I think people should listen to it anyway. And the other one would be eligible for Best Fancast should you wish to nominate it. Um, So the first one is a podcast called The Incomparable Game Show. So There is a podcast network called The Incomparable, which is run by someone I know through Apple journalism circles and started listening to uh, a while back and has lots of different shows on. I'm not going to talk about them all, but the one I am going to talk about is The Game Show. So if you are a fan of panel games and if you are a fan of science fiction, you may enjoy The Incomparable Game Show because it is mostly panel games about science fiction and it is very good. My favourite is one called Inconceivable, which is hosted by Dan Morin, who is also an author and um, and is just amazing. Really enjoy it. It's not eligible for Best Fancast because they make too much money or a company. I can't remember. It's something complicated. Yeah, this is just demonstrating the, the problem with Fan versus Pro that we'll talk about sometime because it's obviously professional work. If we're talking about The Incomparable, though, can I suggest that The Incomparable 600, episode 600, is, would be a very good place to start with The Incomparable, not the game show, the regular podcast, on account of how it's just seven people talking about all the books they like for an hour. And I took lots of notes because many of the books that were recommended were ones that I like very much. And so I'm rather assuming that quite a lot of the other books will be as well. Yes. Although I warn any people who don't like Becky Chambers that two of the first round picks will make your eyes roll. Yeah, but for but for anyone who does like Joe Walton, there are two Joe Walton books recommended on that podcast, and several people went, "Oh, you've taken my pick." I think um, it's a good it's a good episode. I would uh, recommend that one. And then the one I'm going to recommend, which is a fan cast, is a podcast called "Become the Teapot." Now, this is a podcast by Ian and Ian my friend Ian and his friend Ian and basically my friend Ian has read lots of comics and his friend Ian hasn't and so they are on a mission where Ian basically recommends films that have been based on comics and then they read the comic and they watch the film and they discuss them it's really interesting it's a really good concept for a show they've just wrapped up their second x month so every both Januaries they've been recording they've done x month and this month was Ryanuary where they watched only x-men films starring Ryan Reynolds uh, and that was very good. And and yeah, no, it's just really interesting to hear the perspective of someone who's super into comics talk about these movies and the perspective of someone who's kind of coming to the comics in the opposite direction, um, experiencing them for the first time. Yeah, they do some quite out there ones that I hadn't heard of. Also some that I'm kind of very familiar with. Although Ian really didn't like The Old Guard, which I thought was a bit of a shame because I really liked The Old Guard. But he, he makes good points. I just mostly disagree with him. And the episode on the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is bloody brilliant. Um, they get they get so grumpy. It's great. Might listen to that first. It's also fortnightly, and it's also only about forty five minutes. So it, if you are a fan of the sort of format of Octothorpe, it will suit you down to the ground. Uh, 
And then shall we talk about Best Games Hugo? Best Games Hugo went off and spent some time with the Hugo Awards Study Committee in that kind of nourishing way that it does. And it got, I think, quite a good following win there. I think the study committee is minded to be quite enthusiastic and the study committee is, as we know, packed with people who are actually attending business meetings. So the next stage is for the draft proposal to the draft proposals is out there on the internet and we're going to link to the tweet which includes the proposal itself and also a fact um and it is now the best game hugo it spent a little time being the best video game hugo and of course the test hugo was um video game i think we've talked about this quite a lot on octothought before so we we were basically in favor of it being get best game and quite a lot of other people took the same view and so it is currently best game it's going to go back to for its first round at Chaikon and then its second round and then if it gets through that then ratification at Chengdu so we will see so the the the, the proposal that will probably come out of the Hugo Awards study committee is a modification to the constitution of the WUSFUS, which basically introduces something at 3.2.5 to define what an interactive work is and then introduces a new award at 3.3.10 called best game or interactive work so very exciting if like me you want there to be a best game hugo and and when i say i think it's getting a following wind from the hugo award study committee i think it's getting a following wind to the extent that it will be the single clear recommendation for a new hugo category coming out of the study committee this year touch wood whereas everything else is kind of being is hanging around in the soup for another time is that your perception john the study committee is mindful of not swamping the business meeting with lots of tweaks to categories so i suspect it will be this and one other and then the rest will be kind of reported back on for vague comment by interested parties before percolating for another year as Alison says um I'm very happy with this, both because I strongly support the Games Hugo, especially because I think Best Video Game at DC um, went very well, and I will be glad to see that award uh, continue. I am also glad that it's being expanded to include things that are not video games, um, because uh, most of my gaming is not primarily in video form. But that is, it does lead me to, often, a Worldcon will introduce a special category prior to a new category being proposed because it's a good way of testing the waters for that category is this the first time that the category has changed slightly in between the trial category and the eventually proposed category wuss nerds please write it is a broader category than the one discon ran although i will say given that discon's category worked very well with the like tighter focus i can't see why it wouldn't work with a very slightly expanded focus and i suspect even though i will be mostly nominating uh, tabletop games i i suspect the uh finalists will mostly be video games in much the same way that tv dominates best dramatic presentation short form despite the fact that short films are technically eligible i mean i think the better example is that video um dominates the best dramatic presentation categories despite the fact that audio is technically eligible yeah also true because video killed the radio star. And if we ever introduce a best audio Hugo proposal, I want to call it Video Killed the Radio Star, which would not be the stupidest name for a short name for a, a, a wuss proposal ever. 
So I just I've got several comments. I went and had a look at the like the list of special um categories which have been awarded by previous World Cons and I'm not sure any of them have actually become uh full categories except for well, I guess it was best all time series, which was sort of a precursor to best series, but I guess was never intended to repeat. So you wouldn't bother writing the category such that it would repeat. There's also best new author, which I guess turned into the astounding award. Oh, there was also most promising new author. So pff, who knows? I, I think, yeah, I think I'm generally in favour of expanding the best video game, Hugo, to be best game. But I think it does give you a very wide range of stuff to cover. And I'm not completely convinced it's going to be dominated by video games. Because when I look at stuff like the Nebula Award, because the Nebulas uh, give an award which is called Best Game Writing, um, which they've given since 2018, and it is not entirely dominated by video games, it also ends up with a lot of sort of interactive fiction in there as well. And so I think given that we have, you know, venues like Strange Horizons have recently published some more interactive fiction, we might end up with a mix of that plus video game. The other thing is, where do you put Critical Role? Dramatic presentation. What's Critical Role? I'm asking for the listeners. It's an actual play podcast about playing a game. It's basically a video where people play D&D and every week you, well, not, I don't know if it's D&D or some other thing, but it's basically they play RPGs and you watch them play their RPG. BDP. Yeah, it, it's a dramatic presentation. It's, it's definitely not a game. What if I nominate it in the best game, though? Because it's clearly not. It would get moved to best presentation unless you had filled your best presentation category, in which case it would be ignored. I don't think I don't think because an interactive work is a game narrative or presentation in which active input or interactive play is an integral component of the work itself. So the listener or the viewer has to be able to interact with the work in a way that affects the outcome. And my understanding is that Critical Role does not like in the same way that Twitch plays Pokemon allow the viewer to actually shape the narrative in any meaningful way. So it is not eligible in the best game or interactive work category. There is an interesting question here about whether or not something like Twitch Plays Pokemon would be eligible. I think yes, but I think it is such an edge case it's unlikely to actually be tested. And ultimately, if the community gets behind something like that, why not? I mean, I think it it would be interesting to have a fact on that. I think the answer there would be to trust the voters and say, you know, if if Twitch Plays Pokemon got nominated, I think if enough people wanted to nominate and vote for it, that seems fair to me. But no, critical role isn't. There's no question. The, the the category explicitly excludes non-interactive work. The fact that it's interactive for somebody doesn't mean it's interactive for the Hugo voter. Like curb your enthusiasm is improv, but that's not an interactive work, despite the fact that the the actors were interacting with one another. I mean, I think I think it is. I think it's probably an edge case in which I could potentially read it to say, actually, this thing I'm watching is a presentation in which people are doing interactive play. And therefore, it is should count as an interactive work, which is being filmed. So, I mean, I probably wouldn't nominate it anyway, but I think it will be interesting to see if anyone does. Uh, I mean, I have a bigger problem with the, the category that more worries me, because I think uh, in the way that Hugo voters are perverse, which is that I worry that conventions will find their way in here, because the Hugo voters seem to be desperate to to vote to have a Hugo for best convention thing. And um, and you could probably put count it as an because what is a convention if not an interactive experience? But it still doesn't feel like what what's meant by this. And I mean, if it goes wrong, the you know Wuss will correct it in due course. 
one and again like no one's nominating conventions for best because i think by the same argument you could argue that a convention could technically be eligible for best dramatic presentation because you could argue it is a single improvised play yes and they are but they are they fall way down the lists because best dramatic presentation gets lots and lots and lots of nominations and i think so this 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 category will also get nominations i think which will ensure that um that does not happen um it might be worth i guess there might be an argument that says that modifying the um, subclauses to explicitly exclude active plays is wise but i'd want to see it in action for a couple of years first because i note that best video game at discon i don't think anyone nominated any let's plays of games so i am not minded to think it will be a problem really because of course we are praying in aid let's plays as an evaluation tool for people who cannot actually what play the whole of every game themselves yes so hmm yeah <laughs> yeah i wasn't intending to like provoke such a strong reaction just to me i think it could be read as an edge case and i think it's you know will be interesting to see i think we should probably go ahead with it as it is because otherwise we'll just argue for another year about definitions of stuff but it, it will be interesting to see kind of what we end up with and also because it could potentially be a weird category in which I'm basically, you know, comparing a piece of interactive fiction in which, you know, I can like choose my own adventure in two or three places with, you know, a complete 100 hour video game. Oh, sorry. It could You could be choosing it with a complete 100 hour video game where you get to choose the direction of play on two <laughs> or three occasions. I mean, I'm going to be arguing very strongly when when this category exists that people should be casting their nominations and votes for things where the actions that you take influence the game in a big way quite a lot. Um, but I know that that's only my view and people do like the other sort of thing quite a lot as well. Yes. I mean, from my perspective, your criticism there is interesting because although I felt Hades is quite linear, isn't it? No. It's got one... <laughs> <laughs> like you play and you go through the same thing each time and then things happen and the, really the only agency you have is who you give presents to and which weapon you pick i mean maybe if you play 300 hours this becomes less obviously true but like okay so the thing about hades is that it it what happens in the game is extremely dependent on what choices you make but it is certainly true that by the time you get to 300 hours you've then explored Playing Hades for 300 hours is like going through the Sonic game books till you've explored every single possible strand of it, right? So eventually you do manage to get all of the branches, but Hades got a lot of branches. There are a lot of subplots and interesting weird things that happen, and that's part of what is so good about it. I felt like I had more minute-to-minute -minute agency in Spiritfarer than I did in Hades, which I suspect is why I preferred Spiritfarer to Hades, because I got to make choices about what I did next, whereas in Hades it was, I go through the dungeon again. But I take the point that, like... Yeah, but you kind of bounced off Hades, didn't you? I mean, I played it for, like, five hours, but, um, but yeah, like... But I will say, going back to what Liz said, I would like to recommend a substack on interactive fiction and i i would like to quite strongly push back on the idea that a hundred hour video game is somehow inherently better than a work of in interactive fiction because uh, i do not think this is true i at no point said that john no you might have to compare the two but i compare the two all the time so you know i'm, I'm just saying that they are two like they're quite different 
Yeah, they're very different. I do not explicitly have to compare, you know, I do not have to judge this game based on its interactiveness, right? I mean, it's a thing for best game. It does not say best interactive parts of a game. It's best game. So if I wanted to choose like, I don't know, Street Fighter, whatever, you know, Street Fighter 2 or something, then I could. And I'm not judging that based on its narrative. I'm judging it as a game. And so I'm saying something like, you know, oh yeah, yeah, a 10 minute mini interactive twine fiction story judged against like a giant AAA video game is a very broad set of things to consider and maybe broader than we consider in most of the categories. And we're now kind of taking those stories out of where, you know, they're not, they now can't compete in like short story or novelette or anything, which, you know. But they weren't anyway. Well, they weren't being nominated, but. I take I take the point, but that, that if you created a category that short films could appear in and you were like, but now they can't compete in best dramatic presentation short form, I'd be like, I mean, that is true. But given that they're already not represented there, this is the the Hugos do not have to be completely fine grained. Yeah, and it just I it just feels weird to me to create categories that compare enormous disparate amounts of stuff while we still have kind of all these pretty fine grained categories saying we're going to compare. You know, I think it's easier to compare a short story and a novelette than to compare like a short piece of interactive fiction with Horizon Zero Dawn. I don't think we're going ever going to get away from extremely fine grained categories of written fiction because that's that's where the hugo started right i don't think we're ever going to remove any hugo categories yeah so let, let's just start here and then later people might go but the reason i wanted it to be game and not video game which oh, we've talked about yeah i, I should say I, th- I think this is a better way of doing it than best video game i just do think it's got certain you know awkwardnesses to it imagine if we had a hugo category with awkwardnesses in it but I will also say that the Nebula Award, because it is specifically for best game writing, will tend towards that kind of game in a way that I don't think this one will. Because technically speaking, the interactive fiction you're describing would have been eligible at Discon. And looking down the list of nominations, we had Ghost of Tsushima, Sense and Semiosis, Ori and the Will of the Wisps, Spider-Man Miles Morales, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Cyberpunk 2077, The Luminous Underground, Kentucky Route Zero, Half-Life Alex, and Star Wars Squadrons. Sense and Semiosis is a, is a 10-minute twine game. No, I mean, I'm not saying there are none. But I am saying the, the 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 category is clearly not being dominated by those uh, things, so I'm not sure again that that will be a big problem. Did Discon release all their program items online for me to watch? So, some of the recordings are available if you go and look for them, and you log in in your Discon account, you will find them. But they have not officially released anything yet. And in the Discord on the 2nd of February, they said, I know we keep saying soon, but we do mean it. So they're coming real soon now, maybe even before we release. And then they're going to be available for 30 days. So as soon as they're available, the next time we do the podcast, we'll tell you. But you probably do want to keep checking every couple of weeks um, in case they've turned up. This is the age old problem of like once a convention's finished, it's very hard to get anyone to do anything because the convention's finished. Well, I will also say like, I think the majority of the program is up. And I would much rather they waited until it was all up and then start the 30-day clock than saying, well, we've put most of it up and we said it would be 30 days after we announced that. So we've announced it and now there are 30 days and they just never get around to the rest. So I do think this is the right way of doing it. And like, yeah, I'm broadly speaking pro-discon on this one, I'm afraid. I'm being very contrary this week. No, I, I think it's... I think it's fine. I mean, I think it is certainly useful for us to say 
<laughs> they're there. Go and go and get them. Fill your boots. Oh yeah, because they haven't announced it. So like, if you hadn't realised that, there might be some program you want to watch in your Discord account. <laughs> Yeah, so so if you went to Discord or had a virtual membership of Discord and would like to um, go see their program, quite a lot of it is online now. Um, but there are still they haven't formally announced it, and they do keep saying that soon. And I think what they've got is a few items where they're just tidying off the loose ends before they do that. Yes, for instance, I did not know any of it was there. I guess the answer is I probably should have asked Alison, but that feels like a weird way to find out about it. I'm still on the Discord, uh, Discord, and it was mentioned on the Discord. It just wasn't. Yeah, so, so I, I have been carefully not saying for three months, two months. Yeah, there's some stuff there if you go and look for it, because they had not said it in any way publicly. But it's clear that there's a thread in the public questions and answers where it is made clear that it is there now. And as far as I'm concerned, that means it's fair game for putting on Octothorpe. It is there. They have not announced it, but much of it is there. Yeah, I have not been reading all the Discon Discord channels since Discon finished, so I missed this. But I guess I can now watch some replays. Yes. So I saw a tweet from Jason Sanford. He is running a survey on science fiction fantasy magazines to see how readers access them and how that may have changed during the pandemic. And apparently he has a, a survey done very close to the start of the pandemic, like just before. So we'll have some interesting data to compare. So if anyone wants to go in and fill out his survey on uh, how they interact with science fiction fantasy magazines, we will put it in the show notes. Thank you very much, Liz. And then shall we do picks? Yeah. Who would like to do their pick first? So my pick is Far From the Light of Heaven, a novel by Tade Thompson, which is a it's a standalone uh, novel about uh, a colony ship where people are travelling uh, light years to um, their new new colony in, and it it's basically a ship controlled by AI, but of course it has to have a captain on there, essentially just kind of just in case. Um, and the captain is always told, you know, you 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 won't really need to do anything. You're just there just in case. And of course, what we actually find out is that she arrives at the planet and um, everything has gone wrong. Um, it soon becomes clear that the AI is not functioning in any way the way it should be and that quite a lot of the colonists are missing. So it's basically a locked room mystery in space because your locked room is the spaceship. Uh, and so she's trying to piece together what has happened during like the journey when they've all been in cold sleep uh, and, you know, investigators come up from the colony planet she's on. Um, uh, and it's just all about the mystery kind of unfolding on this on this ship and how this also interacts with kind of the political situation of the, the colony planets that are nearby, of the space station that is there for the colony ships. Um, and I just think it's a pretty good standalone bit of kind of lock room mystery in space. I think my one drawback is that I don't actually think the resolution of the mystery is amazing. Um, and, you know, when it is kind of a lock room mystery, it does sort of, you know, a key bit is how, how it was done. And it didn't feel entirely satisfying to me. But I thought the journey to get there was uh, very interesting. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. I have not read this. It sounds very much like my cup of tea, but it does very strongly remind me of Six Wakes by Mer Lafferty, which was on the Hugo finalist roster in, I want to say, 2018, but I might be wrong, around then. And I adored, that was also a locked room mystery 
set on a spaceship and it had the twist that the opening chapter is from the perspective of the clone of one of the murder victims waking up with an incomplete memory backup and seeing their murdered body and that is how the the mystery starts and i adored that novel um i thought it was really great and unlike what you've just said i i really liked how the mystery ended up having been perpetrated i thought it was very good so there are some reviews on Goodreads that say it is, uh, you know, there's some similarities to Six Wakes and some say this is like Six Wakes, but not quite as good. So it may not entirely be your cup of tea. Um, but yeah, I think I would recommend it that there, there is enough of interest there in the kind of, you know, the characters and how this kind of con- colony system uh, interacts um, that I would, yeah, I would recommend it. Um, it also made me remind me a little bit, I think it's, is it Jack Glass? Jack Glass by Adam Roberts, which is the one where you know exactly who the murderer is, but not how he did it until later on in the book, which I also enjoyed. Ah, the sort of sort of like Columbo. This is one of the books that was recommended to me in my, when I asked for recommendations for my pals on things that I might want to vote for for the Hugo as a fantastic book of 2021. And then several other people chipped in to say they'd really enjoyed it as well. So it's on my next up to read list. So I'll probably read it by next time, maybe. It's a library book. It's another one I've got on paper. Turns out paper has very small print. When did they do that? I'm sure when I was younger, it was very easy to read books written on paper and the print was plenty big enough. I don't really have a pick this week on account of having spent most of the two weeks reading a fat fantasy novel that we're going to talk about next time. But I do want to say that I have listened, I've watched episode one of Loki, which is, I believe, a, a series in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I enjoyed it hugely. And I want to pick it now because I've been told by several different people that by the time I get to the end, I will not like it anymore. <laughs> Including John. So, I mean, I basically, um, at the, the first episode is kind of great because um, it's got Tom Hiddleston doing Loki in the way I've kind of always wanted it to, him to do it, which is where he is naked, is grappling with issues about free will and the fixed state of the universe. And this is all happening because Marvel... It turns out that the reason you've only seen one version of the Earth in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is because there's a weirdo bunch of time police looking after it. And it was all done with an aesthetic which is kind of Brazilish, Brazilish rather than Brazilian. But, you know, and, and it's all absolutely lovely and enormous amounts of the um, graphic de- design and cinematography and locations and everything are just fantastic and if it carries on as good as this I will be absolutely thrilled but I know it won't which is why I'm picking it now. I will say the aesthetic stays rock solid throughout <laughs> like it is an enormously pretty show and I enjoyed it a great deal. Well well, Tom Hilston is an enormously pretty actor so you know. That's fair and I think I will say, like, there is a chance that you will think it dis- does stick the landing. I don't know. It'll be interesting uh, to see. But on the subject of MCU shows, I did not pick it as a pick on the pod, but I really enjoyed Hawkeye, which I think is my favourite of the MCU series. Um, and so, uh, yes, that's the kind of the one that I loved out of the four of them. I think Hawk- I think Loki is probably my third favourite. Might be my least favourite, but like, it is a relatively high floor. So being the least favorite doesn't mean i didn't enjoy it um 
if you haven't seen the um, latest Spider-Man movie, I'm about to do a casting spoiler, so you may want to skip to the next chapter, which is a good bit and has Marvin in it. The Spider-Man film. Went to see it. Very good movie. And I really enjoyed seeing Tom Holland and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch doing their thing. And Zendaya and um, the other guy whose name I can't remember because he's not as famous as Zendaya and Tom Holland. Sorry, Ned. But really enjoyed the movie. And I thought it was a very good wrap-up of the first trilogy of Tom Holland Spider-Man movies. And I also thought it was a good capper for Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield in their roles in uh, Spider-Man. Some very good interactions there. And I thought it worked very well. And on the subject of Andrew Garfield, I also watched Tick, Tick, Boom, which is not genre, except that it does have a sci-fi rock musical in it, in the background, called Superburbia, which I really want to see. Like, now I've seen Tick, Tick, Boom, I absolutely want someone to stage that. I understand that it would not work commercially at all, but like, oh my god, if anyone does that, I want to see it, because it looks amazing. And it is so good. I loved it. I adored it. Andrew Garfield is amazing in it. I mean, I have a huge crush on Garfield anyway, but he is just sublime. Uh, and I really liked kind of witnessing that kind of slice of history. It is a desperately poignant film, and I really, really, really loved it. And it is on Netflix. Um, and you put it, and you put this on to your letterbox, so we all knew how much you liked it, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah, four and a half stars. Might have been four, can't remember. But I definitely reviewed it yesterday. Okay, maybe I maybe I'm not quite caught up. So yes, Alison, I did. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> if my mic wasn't on a stand, I would drop it. Don't 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 drop every time anyone drops a mic, I get really, really, really upset. Are you a big Lin Manuel Miranda f- fan? Because this is a this is a Miranda project. I mean I am I am a big Lin Manuel Miranda fan. Except that none of the music is by him. It's directed by him, and the staging is very good. He directed it, but also he made it happen. I, I'm not sure it's actually produced and directed by, but he is. It's all. It was his idea of a film. Lin Manuel Miranda directed and um, was one of the producers on it. But um, don't go into it thinking it will be Lin Manuel Miranda songs because it is very much not. Um, it is Jonathan Larson songs, and it is amazing. No, 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 but this is a passion project by Miranda, so it was on my list because, you know... No, 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 if if what you want is a nice film with Miranda songs, you need to go and watch Encanto, which I think I had as a pick a couple of weeks ago, but I might not have done. And it's got Vanessa Hudgens in, who I think is underused, but yeah. Right, no, it's it's going way up my list now. I just need to talk to Stephen. And also they do the thing at the end where they, like, play video that they have of like Jonathan Larson so you can see like the matches they got to their kind of locations and characters and uh, that was quite fun I do like it when they do that and the thing that really blew my mind sorry is I looked it up afterwards because I was like oh Andrew Garfield he's very good in this and he learned to sing and play piano for the movie and I'm like like because I was like oh I didn't know he could sing and he couldn't and now he can and he's amazing so like maybe he just never tried maybe I mean, I guess. But um, yeah, if he gets the O, I think he's half of the way to an EGOT. So that's good. So will it make me cry, John? Yeah, made me cry. I was going to say you should watch Tom Scott's video about 
basically decides to record himself singing and gets a singing to help him and a good producer to produce it. And he's extremely good for someone who is clearly very embarrassed about doing it and feels he has no singing ability. So I think, yeah, if Andrew Garfield had any ability, they could probably take him from zero to really credible pretty quickly. And that was the Octothought podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Hades did also win the nebula, and that is because you might or might not think it's linear. It has 300,000 words of voice dialogue. Oh, no, the the writing's great. Like, I'm not, not dissing. And the writing is unbelievably good. And, and a lot of those are in strands that you won't see unless you take particular, make particular choices. So it's, 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 it's quite like interactive fiction book in that way, except eventually if you give enough, if you give enough ambrosia and stuff to enough different people, you will get all the ending. No, your 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 analogy of the Sonic game book I thought was very good because um, uh, I think I think you are right that in a lot of ways it's not so much about like the interesting points of the Sonic game book are not when you're rolling dice to do the combat. It's the choices you made that got you to the combat. And I think that Hades, the choices that you make outside of the core gameplay loop are almost the interesting interactive thing, which is an interesting way to do a roguelike. Yes, but the other way that Hades is extremely innovative is that it, it provides a setting in which dying and having to start all over again makes perfect sense, which I feel like games have been looking for for a long time. But I'm not sure I would have enjoyed Hades as much if I couldn't also, you know, go and smack people up with my big sword. Yeah, it's, it's, it's beautifully balanced. Anyway, sorry. We're going to talk about last year's winner now. <laughs> but there's a reason why it, it won overwhelmingly. No, I mean, but I think that's Jermaine. But I think that might be why I have a slightly different view on this, because the part of Hades I found frustrating was I did not find the combat sufficiently compelling to keep me in the narrative. Uh, and so I suspect that might be where part of this is coming from. Um, I found I found it made my hand hurt because I was pressing buttons very quickly. And I, I don't... I just I found the combat a bit too frenetic, whereas like a lot of the games I like with fighting in are a bit more. Um, there is also God mode, um, and I was playing on God mode uh, eventually, but basically like Hades is a game where if you press buttons quicker, it goes better for you. Yeah, a lot of video games are like that, John. No, but like Horizon Zero Dawn, Dawn, you don't press buttons quickly. You press buttons at the right time. In um, Jedi Fallen Order, you press you press buttons at the right time. And so Hades very much felt like that core gameplay loop was it wasn't a game of working out how to use each weapon elegantly. It was a game of pressing buttons incre- incredibly fast. And for me, I found that was what really turned me off it because I just I don't. There are there are builds in Hades where you don't need to press any buttons at all as well. So one of the reasons that people like it is that there are builds that work for people who cannot press buttons. Yeah, I think it's, this is basically if you played like, if you got to the point where you played like 20 hours, I think you would have started to get some of these playstyles, but you really only unlock these kind of quite later on. Like I finished it, but not done all the epilogues. But, you know, once you've unlocked all the weapons and you start to get all the aspects of the weapons, you can start to be like, okay, this is a clever way of doing it. But now this is my Achilles heel, you know. You'd have to press the dash stab button very quickly, though. It's the old Perdido Street Station got good 
500 pages in argument. Or indeed, Octothorpe, much better than <laughs> linearly. Yeah, we, we only really got good 26 episodes in, listeners. No, okay, so we have gotten a little bit into the weeds. That's where we are. This is one of the um, progressions in the podcast, which is if this is the first episode you listen to, you might be surprised that we have all these opinions about video games. But if you're Mark Plummer listening to this thinking, why did I pick these episodes to be the ones I listen to? Mark, the last like 20 episodes, very little game content. And then you start listening again and it just, it's a curse. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.